Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. You ever find yourself in a funk? Maybe the joy of marriage or the joy of your career or just your joy in general has run out. Let's talk about that. What do you do when life loses its joy? The pizzazz of life is just kind of gone. Like Maybe your job has become a total drain to you. Like there's excitement at first, really liked it, but now it's just, ah, it's just a drag. Or marriage, just not life-giving anymore. It used to be like new and fun and sexy, and now it's just, ah, it's just a lot of work. You know, not as fun as it used to be. Or the kids, you know, they just run you ragged and you're exhausted. Maybe friendships, they just seem like it's more work than it's worth. You ever find yourself like in that funk? Like what do you do when life feels like a Chicago January? Bleak, cold, bland, meh. Like the joy, the warmth, the fun has run out. You ever been there? Or are you there? It's okay to admit it. In fact, Jesus wants to talk about it today. John chapter 1, or John chapter 2, sorry, is where we're at. John chapter 2. We're really you to grab a Bible. we got Bibles on the chairs, page numbers on the screen. I'm not going to throw all the verses on the screen, just because it's such a big thing when the family of God gets together and we open up the Word of God. It's just a, a big deal, and so I want us all to be in our Bibles. John chapter 2 is where we'll be. I remember sitting in my first class in Bible college, uh, my sophomore year, I went to, my freshman year, I went to a school up in Madison, Wisconsin, and I transferred to um, uh, Bible college in Chicago my sophomore year. And I remember my first day, my first class, uh, was hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is just a fancy way of saying, understanding the Bible. Like, leave it to seminary pe- people to, like, complicate things. Like, it's understanding them. No, it's hermeneutics. But my professor, really cool guy, young guy, big beard, the only professor who would like invite me over to his house to just hang out, super cool guy. He got fired. Uh, I don't know why I said that. Um, but I remember, I remember my first day, first class in Bible college, um, sitting there in class. He gets up and he has us open our Bibles to this passage right here. And he explained the historical background to us in a way like I've never heard before. Like this, this story just like came to life. And I left that class going, man, studying the Bible is awesome. Like there's just so much there, which is why I'm really excited to, to jump into John chapter two. I'm sure you've heard this story before, but we're gonna take a bit of a different approach to it today. And I hope you're along for the ride. Let me pray, we'll jump in. God, I thank you so much for your word. I, I thank you that your word is living and active. God, may you remind us through the power of your Holy Spirit just how heavy of a moment this is. One of the most important things that we do this week, and that is getting together with brothers and sisters and opening the word from our dad. And so may you just remind us of the weight of this, the, the seriousness of this, the specialness of this. And may your Holy Spirit illuminate this text to us, bring situations to mind, and also eliminate distractions. God, you're going to speak mightily. And I ask that we listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we enter into John chapter 2, uh, we find ourselves in a, in a typical courtyard. A wagon of freshly cut vines and greenery sits in the middle. Women scurry back and forth, draping the greenery over the doorways and, and the walls and stringing lanterns above. A few men carry in tables and, and chairs, and the ladies quickly decorate the tables with greenery and, and candles and, and lanterns and plates and, and cups. Inside the house, the servants are quickly dicing up all the vegetables and starting the cooking fires. 
large jars of wine are hauled into another room. It's becoming this picturesque courtyard, a lush courtyard. The, the calming lanterns light the newly scrubbed cobblestone floor. The smell of olive oil chicken and spiced goat and lamb it fills the air. Pitchers of wine are placed on all of the tables. It's the scene that every Jewish girl dreams of. An emotional mom pins flowers in her hair as her soon-to-be husband is waiting in anticipation below. Soon the party begins. The music will be loud. The dancing will be lively. The laughter will be everywhere. The places are set. The, the lamps are lit. The food is cooked. The wine is flowing. The band is playing. This will be the night the bride and the groom will one day tell their kids about. But little do they know, a story will happen that will be retold for generations to come. Verse 1, John writes this. He writes, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So on the third day, meaning that the, the, right before this, Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee. He was calling fishermen to be his disciples. Uh, three days later, he brings them, his new disciples, to Cana. Uh, Cana, by the way, is this little town not too far from Nazareth. Uh, if you have come to Israel with me, uh, we've, we've gone to Cana. In fact, I'm going to be taking another group this November. So if you'd like to go to Israel with me in November, I'd be happy to. We'll go to Cana as well. Not too far from Nazareth. And John says that Jesus' mom is there. But not just her. There would be other family. There would be extended family. There would be old friends. It's going to be this fun party, all these familiar faces. And weddings during this time were a really big deal. They were the highlight of everybody's year. You have to, you have to remember, first century life is, was hard. Like, you needed something to look forward to. And weddings were that for a typical person. Like, I'm a big believer in always having something to look forward to. So I always try to plan something in, like, January. So, like, Thursday I'm flying out to New Orleans to go visit my brother for a few days. Just because, gosh, it's January. I need something to look forward to. Weddings were like that during this time. A typical day, I mean, you're working from sunup to sundown. There's not much food on the table when you get home, if any food on the table. There's really no entertainment. It's just constant work. But weddings... Oh, weddings. Weddings had plenty of food. Weddings had wine. Weddings had entertainment. Weddings had dancing. So there's a lot of excitement going into this. Not just for the bride and the groom who are, of course, excited for this wedding. Everybody attending. This is going to be the highlight of their year where they're able to just kind of let their hair down, enjoy the time together. Verse 3 says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So hours ago, this scene was every Jewish girl's dream. It was perfect. Now this dream has become a nightmare. For a couple to start their marriage this way, this is shameful, this is embarrassing. This could actually open up the groom for lawsuits, literally. Because it's, hey, we took off a week of work, and we don't do that. And uh, we brought gifts, and we traveled here. There's no wine. You're scamming us for gifts. This is literally what people would think. And there would be lawsuits over this. See, wine symbolized... It was very symbolic. It was the worst thing to run out of. I mean, it symbolized joy. If there was a celebration, there was wine. If there was no wine, there's no celebration. And just inside, the servants just poured the last bit of wine into a small pitcher. And panic is setting in with this new couple. The groom is sitting there beat red. He can't enjoy the music anymore. He can't enjoy the food. He can't enjoy his friends. Soon they're going to be all angry with him, visibly angry. This is the worst feeling. There's nothing you can do. I mean, there's no binnies down the street. There's no, like, there, there, there's no winery just outside of town. There's no, you can't just go pick up wine. There's nothing you can do but grit your teeth and watch the crash. 
And my guess is you know the feeling. Now, you didn't run out of wine at your wedding. But you've run out of joy somewhere in your life. And the job is grueling. Marriage, you know, started out like a dream. And now marriage, like this wedding, kind of has turned into a nightmare. Or you look at your recent life, and it wasn't too long ago. You just had more drive. You had more energy. You had vision. You were happier. You sit here. It's like kind of feeling like this couple. I just kind of ran out. I don't know what happened. And you feel like you're out of options. You've gone through those options. I could quit my job. I don't want to quit my job, though. I could abandon the family, but I'm not going to abandon the family. I could take the family and run, but who's to say wherever we run to is going to be any different? Because the fact of the matter is, many of us, most of us, all of us, some of us, there's areas of our life we just had, we have less joy now than we had before. We ran out. We're not quite sure what happened. And social media just makes things worse, doesn't it? You're sitting on your couch and you're not feeling great about your life and, you know, you just, what, what are you going to do? You scroll social media. Uh, there's Susie bragging about her freaking marriage. Bob bought me flowers today. Special, special man. I've never been happier. And you think Bob sounds like an idiot. And then you hit like and keep scrolling. <laughs> or, you know, there's the Smiths on their fourth vacation this year. Look at Mrs. Smith with her beach picture. Book in her lap, you know, drinking one hand, overlooking the water. And you think, well, I hope a tidal wave comes and shoves her. Because here you are, you're at home and your spouse hasn't done anything special for you lately and there's no romance, there's no excitement. The kids have been kind of annoying lately. Been, they've been ungrateful. You haven't been out of town in years. It feels like your life is as dry as the wine vessel at the wedding party. And when you imagine life beforehand, when you imagine this career when you got into it, when you imagine marriage when you were planning for the wedding or when you imagine having kids when you were going to have kids, this wasn't what you imagined. And the wine is gone. See, there the bride and the groom sit. They're feeling this deeply. She's dreamt of this day for years. She's told her friends the details of this wedding since she was a little girl. But this is never one of those details. And he hasn't been married for, what, more than a week. And already he can't provide for her. So you have the joy, the excitement, the fun is gone. And Mary feels awful. They have no wine. Look at Jesus' response. It's a bit offensive. Woman? <laughs> Fellas, I would never advise this. Uh, it is what Jesus said, but this is not disrespectful. Context is, is very important. Um, Jesus is being formal here. Okay, So another way to put this, like if there was a junior translation of the Bible, which don't worry, there never will be one. But if there was one, it would say something like, uh, my lady, my lady. Right? The new disciples are around. It's a formal environment. He doesn't want to say, mom. So he's formal here, just my lady. And it could be that he's, you know, being funny here, kind of tongue-in-cheek. That's what I think. He goes, my lady, what does this have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. Mom, I'm, I'm here to save the world, not weddings. But we know he's going to do it because it's mom. Like, it's, it's like my mom. I love my mom. My mom taught me about the Bible and, and ministry, how to treat a lady. A lot of people say, like, oh, did you get into ministry because your dad, well, kind of, but like my mom was just as big of a part of that. Big influence in my life. When she asks me to do something, I'm going to do it. Like last summer, our, our staff went up to a camp and uh, 
Jordan and I, we, we designed a scavenger hunt. So like 30-some staff were up at camp. In fact, this was the day we all, we all went up. And we, we split everyone into 10 teams. And we gave each team a golf cart and a list of rhymes that I had written. So each rhyme was like a clue as to, you know, where you could find something around camp. Like, for example, I'll show you one clue, see if you can solve it. One clue on the list was, it's been years since I've been considered new, but recently I just carried dues of two. So where would this have been? Canoe. That's right. For any of you who did not know where it was, it means you don't listen to my podcast, and you can, no, I'm just joking. But uh, so it was a list of, list of rhymes, and I like this stuff. Like, I'm not good at many things, but I, I'm a writer. I, I can rhyme. My mind works that way. So I just had fun. It was, it was a blast. Well, my mom found out about this, and, and she introduced it to her company, United Airlines, to train their employees. All of a sudden, one day, my phone is just blowing up. I'm getting bombarded with text as United Airlines meets about you know, training their employees. And so I'm getting these texts. Hey, can you come up with a rhyme f- for clues for our training? Like, we need a rhyme for the oxygen masks. We need a rhyme for life vests. We need a rhyme for exit rows. Like, my phone is just blowing up. And part of me wanted to text back, my lady... Why are you involving me? I don't work for United Airlines. Like, they have staff that gets paid more than me. I have them do it. But I ended up doing it because it's my mom. Now, if you had asked, I probably wouldn't have done it. I'm sorry. But she can get away with it because it's mom. I think that's what's playing out here. Jesus is sitting at a wedding. He's enjoying family. He's enjoying friends. He's deep into conversation. He's dancing with a wedding party. He's eating good food. Mom taps him on the shoulder. He just doesn't feel like it. But it's mom, and moms can get away with it. What does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. I I came to connect God with man, mom, not wine to a party. And then Mary does such a mom thing. I love this. She smiles and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then she walks away. (laughs) Because she's mom, and she can do that. And now Jesus is going to perform his first miracle. Jesus' first miracle was making wine for a party. A lot of people don't like that. First miracle, making wine. The incarnation of the Godhead. First miracle, providing alcohol for a party who had run out. Seems almost wrong, doesn't it? It almost seems sacrilegious. Hold on to that thought. We'll get to it, but first let's see what he does. Verse 6 says, Then there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Now, the law required Jewish families to ceremonial wash before certain things in order to stay ceremonially clean. Uh, These are large stone jars, and they were very symbolic. These stone jars were symbolic of the law. They were symbolic of cleansing. They were symbolic of the traditions of, of staying clean. Jesus came to fulfill what these jars couldn't do. These jars would cleanse the family of dirt, but Jesus came to cleanse the family of sin. What these jars did physically, Jesus came to do spiritually. So there's a lot of symbolism as to what's going on here. But we have six stone jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons, John says. All together, if you do the math, that's 120 to 180 gallons. That's a lot. If you were to put this into wine bottles, that is up to 900 bottles of wine. And I love what Jesus is doing. Now, spoiler alert, he's about to turn water to wine. And I know you're like, whoa, didn't see that coming. I know, right? Jesus is about to make 900 bottles of wine for this little party. Now, again, the whole idea of Jesus making alcohol, let's just put that aside for a second. 
Just this alone is overkill, isn't it? 900 bottles of wine for a little party? Why? And I love the reason why. During this time, Greek mythology was huge. Here's a few of the Greek gods on Mount Olympus. I had to get a few more leaves just to make it appropriate for us. And we know a little bit of Greek mythology, right? Uh, especially because uh, Disney made Hercules. Um, but it was, it was nothing like during this time. Greek culture had swept through the Roman Empire. And, uh, and Greek mythology was just, it was everywhere. It was in architecture, it was in mosaics, it was statues, it was in temples. The lecture halls were talking about Greek mythology. Uh, literature was about Greek mythology. You'd go to a play, it'd be about Greek mythology. It was in the entertainment. It was everywhere. You imagine boys during this time, instead of trading like baseball cards or wearing football jerseys, they were arguing over their favorite Greek god. Well, I'm Zeus because Zeus is the king. Well, I'm Poseidon because Poseidon rules the seas. You know, I want to be Apollo with his archery. Like each person identified with a, a different Greek god and they knew about him. Each god had like a backstory of how they, you know, overcame something or how they became divine and what they're good at. And other than most Jews, this was people's obsession. People just couldn't, they, they were eating it up. You think about it like today, it'd be like Marvel or, you know, sports. It was just everywhere. Now, even though most Jews didn't get into the Greek God craze, they still knew about each God because it was all around us, what everybody was talking about. And one of these gods, and maybe you've heard his name before, uh, his name is Dionysus. Dionysus was the young, trendy, hip God. He was the youngest on Mount Olympus. And Dionysus has a crazy story. So apparently Dionysus' father is Zeus, who is the king. So Dionysus was nicknamed son of the king or son of God little parallelism to who Jesus is, but there's more. Legend has it that when Dionysus was young, an enemy had killed him and tore his body up, but Zeus came along and recreated him and gave him life and resurrected him. So again, more parallelism to Jesus. I know it's false, but it's parallelism to the identity of Jesus. Well, Dionysus was known to be the god of parties. He was the young god. He was the, the cool god. He, he brought the party, and parties would pray to Dionysus that you would make this party lit, make the wine flow, because Dionysus was the god of wine. He provided wine. And so parties would get together, and they would party. They would toast in the name of Dionysus. Now here's Jesus. Party's out of wine. He steps up. He doesn't just bring a bottle. He brings 900 bottles. It's overkill. But could it be that Jesus is making a statement? He's shattering the image of Dionysus. Now there's a new God to talk about, a God who tangibly did something that Dionysus never did, water to wine, a story that would no doubt spread like wildfire. Dionysus was beat at his own game. Did you hear about this? There's a new son of God, son of the king on the block, and he's in the flesh. The more you learn about Jesus, the more brilliance you see in him. I mean, the guy is just so cool. Verse 8, so he said to the servants, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, you know these guys are saying, why are we doing this? We need wine, not ceremonial water. You know, this is why we don't invite rabbis. They're just going to make the party into a church service. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Look at that in the parentheses. If you circle or highlight or underline in your Bible, circle or highlight or underline that. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
So the good wines always serve first. Then later on, when people's judgment is a little bit clouded, then you bring in the two-buck chuck because nobody would really care or really know. That's what people would normally do during this time. That's what the Master of Ceremonies is saying. Again, a lot of people struggle with this miracle. I grew up, uh, I grew up in a Baptist circle, and Baptist people are just fantastic. And loyal people who love God's word, they're faithful, disciplined, really, really care about God's word. And often when uh, we look to hire, uh, sometimes we look for like people with Baptist backgrounds because their theology is solid and they're loyal. Like our worship pastor Jansen has that, has that background too. But a lot of Baptists, so a lot of my friends, hate alcohol. And I totally get it because people can be just idiots and annoying and just stupid like little kids around it. But the Baptist circle that I, I grew up around, the story was a struggle because God in flesh, God incarnate, comes down, first miracle, makes alcohol for a party you'd run out. So the question is always like, what do we do with this? Because it seems like sin. Jesus is not just at a party that maybe we shouldn't be at because there's alcohol, but like he's providing more wine. And so I was taught that, um, that this wasn't really wine. It was more like grape juice, nearly impossible to become inebriated on. And the problem with that is it's just not true. This culture knew how to get inebriated on wine. And they called this wine, and not just wine, but they called it good wine. If this were grapefruit, or if this were grape juice, they would, they would master ceremonies would have called it grape juice. The wedding party would have been upset because of culturally what's going on. This is good wine. Now Jesus does not endorse inebriation. He's vocally against inebriation. We should not get inebriated if we follow Jesus Christ. But without getting into that whole mud of let's talk about alcohol. If we get into that mud, we can easily miss the beauty of this miracle. There's such an amazing theological truth here, but so often we miss it because we get distracted by, oh my goodness, God just made alcohol. And then we miss this incredible theological truth in here. And the incredible theological truth in here is this. God cares. He cares. This, it's a little wedding party. In the grand scheme of things, it's nothing. It's just a no-name wedding. And Jesus is God. God's got a lot of better things to do. He codes DNA. He sustains planetary orbits. God breathes life into babies in their womb, in, in mom's womb. This is, this is just some no-name wedding. We don't even know the names. And I think that's pretty incredible, and we miss that so often in this story. Are your finances a big stressor right now? He cares. And I know that doesn't put money back in your bank account, but it does change things, at least for us. He cares that you're stressed. You walk in here, your marriage is just kind of a drag. There's a little romance. There's not much intimacy. You're not on the same page together. God cares about that. And maybe you walked in here, you're just hurting. You're lonely, confused. God hurts for you. God cares that the joy or the wine in your life has run out. Yeah, he's the God of this universe who gives life and takes it. He's worshipped by armies of angels. Yet the eye is on the sparrow. How much more does he care about the issue that you walked in with? Your job security, your, your depression, your anxiety, your, your wayward child, your, your health. He cares. And again, I know that doesn't automatically fix what you're going through. I know this truth doesn't put money in your account or join your marriage or doesn't give you a job offer. But personally for me, I'm just pausing here because I feel a responsibility to communicate this. It's a beautiful message from our dad that he wants you to know. It's kind of like the, the other night I was 
putting my oldest to bed. And she was very sad. She was crying because a girl was picking on her that day, and she was dreading seeing that girl the next day. And, and as her dad, like, I, there's like a few things that go through your head, right? Whenever, I'm sure you've dealt with the same thing. Like a few things go through your head. You know, when that happens, you're like, all right, should I like sign up for like self-defense classes? Uh, should I call the parents? Uh, should I call my friend? I'm pretty sure my friend has mafia connections. Maybe I should call him. You know, all these things are just like running through my head. But above all of those things, as her dad, what I really wanted to do was just brush the hair out of her face, hold her, and let her know that I care. And that's why I point this out. Our Heavenly Father wants to let you know He cares. He cares about you. And I know it hurts. I know there's times you just try not to think about it, you know, and try to act like you're all fine, tough it out. But then there are those moments where you feel like you're going to bed like a little kid, and it just hurts. And the marriage hurts, and the job weighs heavy, and the child is sinking your heart, and you're lonely, and you're reminded of the pain. And it's in those moments your father just wants to hold you and tell you, I care. I care about that. He cares about what you're going through. And as his children, for us, that matters. That makes a difference. And here, he cares about this little wedding that, run out of, that had run out of wine. Verse 11, John finishes up by saying, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So before this, Jesus was known as a great teacher. He could draw a crowd. His teaching was practical. It was engaging. But John writes here, this changed the game. This manifested his glory. This revealed he was more than a teacher. He's God in flesh. And the disciples believed in him. I love that word sign. If you Again, if you highlight or underline or circle in your Bible, circle that. Sign is such a big word here. This isn't just some trick that Jesus is doing. You know, hey, look at me. I'm God. Told you so. It's, this is a sign. And signs are deeper. Signs preach a message. Signs point to a message. And in this sign, Jesus is teaching us three things from this sign. What do you do in life, or what do you do when a part of your life had just run out of wine? When marriage has become a drag, when job has become a drag, you're experiencing little joy, when wine in your life is gone, what do you do? Jesus preaches three things. First, doing what Jesus says matters, especially in that moment. Doing what Jesus says matters. I love what Mary says, right? She just smiles, says, do what he says, and walks away. Anytime we run out of joy in our life, finances are stressful, job is difficult, life is just meh, when that happens, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should at least stop, pause, take a step back, and ask ourselves, am I doing what Jesus tells me to do? Have I run out of joy in that area of my life because I'm refusing to do something that Jesus has told me to do? Often, not always, but often, there's somewhere where we contribute to the loss of wine or loss of joy in our life. So, for example, marriage. Maybe your marriage has become a drag. Okay. Are you contributing to that? Are you going on date nights? Well, you know, there's no connection. We're not having any fun any, anymore. You know, we're parents, not lovers anymore. Of course you're running out of wine because you're not focusing on what Scripture tells you is the foundation of the home the marriage. And so until you realize that I'm contributing to the loss of wine in my marriage, you're just going to keep losing more joy. It's kind of like the, the guy, I don't mean to be crass, but it's kind of like the guy who, who came to me a while back and he said, my wife never wants to have sex. It's rarely ever. It's all her fault. And I, and I said, well, are you someone she wants to have sex with? Hey, what do you mean? I'm her husband. 
Like sex starts in the kitchen. Not literally, although it can. But it, it starts with serving her, and making dinner, doing the dishes, loving her, listening to her, sacrificing for her, and leading. If you're following her around like a puppy dog, it's just not sexy. Like lead, be, be a man, stop crying about lack of sex, and, and, and do something. This is what Jesus tells us to do. Lay your life down for her. Sacrifice for her. That's how you get the wine. Or in this case, for this poor guy, the sex. But it's not just men. I mean, women too. You might be thinking, oh, my husband just never, like, never does anything special for me. Okay, maybe he should, but are you contributing? Are you somebody that he wants to be romantic with? Or are you just like a bump on a log in a wet blanket? And just difficult. See, anytime we run out of wine in our life, we've got to ask ourselves, okay, am I contributing to the loss of wine here. Job's a drag. Okay, are you contributing to it? Are you always like complaining about it and just speaking death into your career? Are you not trying to make this fun? Are you difficult to work with? The kids are exhausting me. Okay, well, kids do that, but, but also am I contributing to that? Am I disciplining them? Am I taking those needed date nights with my spouse to just get a breather and focus on the foundation of the home? Am I establishing boundaries with the kids? See, anytime we run out of joy, we need to step back and ask ourselves, am I doing what Mary told the staff to do? Am I doing what Jesus says? And sometimes the lack of wine is not our fault. Sometimes, but more often than not, we contribute to it. And it should make us recalibrate, step back, recalibrate, and go, okay, am I doing what Jesus is child raising? Number two, the second thing that Jesus preaches in the sign is servants have the most fun. Servants have the most fun. If you look at this text, who got the front row tickets to Jesus' miracle? First miracle. It wasn't the disciples. It wasn't the bride or the groom. It wasn't the master ceremony. Who, who knew about it? It was in the parentheses in the text. It was the servants. See, God gives front row tickets to servants. Now, for me, I'm always used to the nosebleed section, right, in sports. You know, sitting way up there. It's still fun, though. I like to be in the arena. You know, there's like the energy. But I, uh, I have, I've had a couple friends... Uh, Give, in the past, just give me like tickets to sit closer. I had one, one good friend give me a courtside tickets one time. Just like blew my mind. Like these people like right in front of my face. It was just like, it was insane. It kind of ruined the nosebleeds for me to like be there courtside. And Jesus says in here, God gives front row tickets to his work, courtside tickets, to the servants. And we see it in this text, but we see it all around us. The happiest people in our church are servants. Because they have the front row tickets. I pulled in this morning on the way to church. There's about 15 guys who came here early to shovel. And they all had smiles on their faces as they were shoveling. What is wrong with you guys? You're shoveling snow. They got the front row tickets to seeing God work. Or then I walked into the Bridge Kids area and I dropped my kids off at the 9 a.m. service. And the teacher that I dropped the kids off with has this big old smile on her face. I'm like, you're hanging out with kids. Are you insane? Have you been background checked yet? Why are you so happy? How are Bridge Kids workers having so much fun? And many of them say it's our favorite part of the week. How? Because they get to see God work in these little kids' minds and in their little hearts. They get to see the faith of children. There's more excitement in their worship than in this room. Jesus loves ministering to little kids. Or you come by on Saturdays to our food pantry. Scores of volunteers just giving up their Saturday mornings to carry boxes and set up tables, grinning ear to ear. How? You're giving up a Saturday morning. Why are you guys so happy? Because they get to be in the front row seat to the work of God. They get to see God provide food each Saturday, and they get a front row seat to giving that the people in need food for their table for the week. 
How can you not smile about that? Servants have the most fun. You can't convince me otherwise. Servants have the most fun. And Jesus preaches it here. When joy runs out in life, often, and this isn't politically correct, but it's true, often the answer is press deeper into serving. Now, the world's going to tell you, oh, you need to take a step back. You need to, like, do you, you know, make yourself happy. Jesus says here, press into serving. Marriage is a drag? Okay, serve more. Outdo your spouse in serving them. The wine will come, but you just focus on serving them. Oh, your job's a drag? Okay, serve more. Go fill the coffee pot. Do the stuff that nobody else wants to do. Bring in breakfast. The wine will come. You'll get a front row seat to God's work there. Sign up to serve at church. Get involved in Bridge Kids. Work with our students. Help with the food pantry. We need men, by the way, to help with our food pantry more. Sign up for the food pantry. Serve coffee. Do something. Servants have the most fun because servants get a front row seat. Yeah, sure, the people, in this, the people at the wedding, like they got the wine, the good wine. But those servants that left the wedding that night would be telling a story they would be telling for decades. I got to witness the first miracle of Jesus Christ. You're out of the wine. Do what Jesus says and press in deeper with serving. Then number three is Jesus is the best party. And I know this seems like such like a, almost like a kid point, right? Like obvious Jesus is the best party. So cliche. Yeah, but this is, I say this because this is Jesus' main explicit message. I'm shattering Dionysus. I'm bringing the party. But how many of us, we keep going to someone else for our wine or something else for our wine. In reality, we don't see Jesus as the giver of joy in this life. Instead, our wine giver is our career. That's where I get my joy from. And that's why you struggle. Or my wine is my image. As long as I'm looking good, I'm happy. But on those bad hair days, it's a little difficult. Or social media game. Or my wine givers are the stores, shopping. We get our wine from our bank account. We get our wine from relationships. We go from one relationship to another. As soon as one relationship runs out of wine, I'm on to the next relationship to get the wine out of that, and then on to the next relationship. We get our wine from eating. We get our wine from websites. We get our wine from substances. We get our wine from actual wine. And Jesus says here, I'll shatter that too. They've never actually provided you with what you're looking for. So when are you going to stop going to them? Come to me, 900 bottles of wine. I will give you more than you expected. I will blow you out of the water. Stop looking everywhere else. I'm it. In North Korea, there's a, a casino. Uh, people come here to do it. You know, you do it at casinos, right? Gamble, hoping to walk away with more wine than you walked in with. Uh, this specific casino in North Korea is interesting, though. It has never, ever, ever awarded a jackpot. In fact, they've openly said, hey, we will never, ever, ever award a jackpot. The best you can do at this casino is if you were to win something, you get a little ticket. It's kind of like Chuck E. Cheese. You, know, you get a little ticket, and you take it up to a prize counter, and then you exchange that ticket for something that's worth far less than what you put into the slot machine. That's the best you can do. Yet still, each day, this casino is filled with hopeful people hoping to get it. And we look at this and we just kind of laugh. This is so ridiculous. But how many of us are right there? Career has never actually provided the satisfaction you're looking for. It never has. It never will. But maybe, just maybe, that next project, 
Maybe that next promotion, that'll be it. Or your image has never, ever given you what you're looking for, but maybe, just maybe, you know, you'll, it'll click. Or your phone only drains you, but maybe, just maybe, that next notification will give me more wine. Maybe that next relationship will be the wine I'm looking for. We find ourselves in the casino of, of life, pulling these levers of relationships and friendships and image and, and jobs, yet at the end of the week, our head hits the pillow and we're just found wanting. And yet Jesus' first miracle preached, I'm everything. I am what you're looking for. I will blow you out of the water. Do what he says. Be a servant. Just go to him for more joy. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.